Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Did, did you guys <coughs> have as much fun cutting it up and cracking up and stuff as you can hear on like, you know, Exodus album and those records, uh, were you guys really having that much fun? Uh, well, yes. I mean, none of it was faked. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, to, to be honest, without having the sense of humor, that gig would have been not hell, but it would have been a lot more rough if, if we were a bunch of, if all of us were a bunch of wet blankets and had no, you know, gift of gab or imagination or, you know, a sense of humor, we wouldn't have made it. I mean, I'll say straight up, Morris Hayes is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, I mean, just all day natural fun. I don't know why he wasn't a comedian. He's so funny. So he lightened the tension often, you know. And uh, I mean, but everybody, Tommy's he's, uh, kind of a funny dude, too. And Sonny just crazy. It just like he just did things <laughs> all the time. And, and just uh, that just kept us laughing, you know. I can't really go into it because it's uh, you know. But uh, does does Sonny sort of get away with more because he went back so far with Prince? Um. <laughs> yes, a little bit. Prince was a little more cautious about how he spoke to Sonny than the rest of us, 
because he knew Sonny could fight and would fight. Like Sonny's reputation in the hood was don't mess with Sonny. You know, Sonny had studied martial arts. Sonny had studied astrophysics in, in college. Like Sonny, Sonny Thompson is, you know how you hear about these people who are, you know, they have pr- problems fitting into society because they're just, their minds are too expansive. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Sonny different. He, but by the same token, there's a symbiosis between me and him. It's like, if he's that crazy, I must be that crazy. Because everything that I understand about Sonny is through osmosis. It's through playing with him. Like, I've never worked with a, a, a another musician that was so intuitive. I mean, sometimes it's like Sonny was just taking dictation from a higher source. It, you know, it, it like, I, I, I was... My gift was knowing how brilliant he was and how to frame his ideas. Like we we knew how to get the pistons working correctly, you know, the up down. Uh, and 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 that's what Prince really dug. And I don't know if he saw that, you know, ahead of time. I don't know if he heard us play together and went, uh, or I don't know how he figured that out, but it's Sonny's like uh somebody said uh Pierre Lewis, who was in the Lewis Connection, <laughs> said to me one time, he walked up at Bunkers, and Sonny and I were playing. He said, man, I used to think Sonny was just an outlier. But I think the both of y'all came down in that pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Y'all came down in the same pod, huh? <laughs> so, I don't know. Did- I love him. Uh, Sonny is, <laughs> I mean, uh, in many ways, the, the, the love of my life, man. You know, and I don't care if you think it's a, in a gay way or not. That that man is everything to me. That's a beautiful thing, you know. Sonny is all. And Prince felt the same way about Sonny. He always, anytime anybody asked, I, I'm sure you have the Guitar Player magazine where they're, oh, so tell us your influences in Sonny. And Prince is like, well, really, the, the guy who plays bass in my band influenced me more than anybody else, Sonny. You know, and they, well, we hear a distinct Santana influence, and maybe there's a. He's like, yes, you hear those things also, but if you're asking me who was my mentor, who taught me about music, it's it was Sonny, you know. And then what? they interview Sonny, and then Sonny says, like, he said what, <laughs> you know? <laughs> he was mad. He was bad when I met him. You know, Sonny doesn't take any any credit for him. And he's like, Prince already was on his way to be becoming who he was. He's like, I just happened to to recognize it, and you know. He comes by the house. Apparently, Sonny's like, man, I'd be sleeping on my mom's couch. And Prince would come knocking on the door. You know, uh, it's, it's open. You know, <laughs> Prince would come walking in uh, and be uh, asking if he could borrow, like, uh, effect pedals. Sonny, going to borrow your envelope uh, envelope follower? Yeah, man, it's over. <laughs> you know, Prince said that he and Andre used to uh, walk over to Sonny's house. And in the Midwest here, we have these houses where you have the uh, uh, the, uh, the basements where the with the windows where you can see down in. And <laughs> Prince said Sonny would be sitting on uh, a mattress, no box spring, uh, with uh, a Stratocaster, a pig nose amp, and a Wawa, and chain smoking in his mom's basement. 
and they'd be looking at him through the window. And they would look. I, I think anybody I, said they were too scared to knock because Sonny, you know, had a short fuse. <laughs> and but Sonny would see him and y'all come in, man. And they'd watch Sonny just play for hours. And Prince was like, it was it was better than television. It was mm-hmm. the most amazing thing we could see. And he said, after that, all the all we all there was to do, you know, was you know, hang out out hang around outside and swat mosquitoes, pretty much. Like that, Sonny was better than television. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I could I could picture him out there on those cold Minneapolis, you know, yeah. days looking in there, getting you know, getting Maybe, where it's warm. You know, I, and yeah, I'm thinking that uh, that mostly was the summertime. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but hey, uh, I was wondering, you know, thinking of you and Sonny, did you guys uh, tracks like Days of Wild and Get Wild and? Um, those kind of songs were the, some of those sound like they could have just been born out of you and Sonny, maybe laying down a groove and just adding stuff on top. They certainly were happening in the same era. And there was a, uh, a remix of get wild that used the loop of me and Sonny prominently. Um, uh, but um, get wild uh, took on a couple of different forms before you got to the, the version that was released. There was a version we recorded more like a live band. And then Prince kind of gutted it and, you know, threw some electronic drums in there. He messed with the arrangement and some. He, I think he just kind of sampled and, and dragged uh, in whatever he wanted from the live tracks and kind of re, reshaped the whole thing. He did that a number of times while we were there. That also happened with Race and uh, 319. There are alternate versions of those that are like full on. Like there's a version of 319 with like that we cut with the with the MBG horns, like live all together. And it just, I think it was a little too, uh, just uh, too organic and uh, like, and we just we, we missed the mark somehow. Like it wasn't really what Prince was looking for, and. Um, so he retooled it a bit, and then you know. But I think, I think all those decisions were the right, were were correct. So, how much material do you think is still in there somewhere that you know people would enjoy hearing? <laughs> it's hard to say because he was so prolific, and and it's difficult to know what was finished and what wasn't. You know, it's a uh, one night. Out of nowhere, Prince called me and Sonny to come out to Paisley. He's got Maceo and uh, uh, Greg Boyer. And uh, I think the dude's name was Ray, trumpet player. Uh, He was like a nephew of one of the dudes in the Booyah tribe. Hmm. And he had that Booyah hair. And he had, you know, and um, we cut probably 10 things that all sounded like Little Richard. Like it was just bass, drums, piano, and those three dudes playing horns. It was so much fun. And who knows if that'll ever see the light of day. You just, you just don't know, you know. Uh, what, what was that like in the early 2000s? Or? Oh, wow. Not super early because Sonny and I were spending a lot of time in Europe between 98 and 2003. So, so mid-2000s? Post, post-musicology for sure. Yeah. Um, 
But just stuff like that. You know, the day we cut 3121, we probably cut another nine songs that didn't that weren't even on the record. <laughs> you know? It's just, I mean, to give you an idea of the level of uh prolificity. <laughs> <laughs> We pretty much cut Lotus Flower in one single recording session. Like everything we Sonny and I played on on Lotus Flower, we recorded in one session. Just with Prince playing guitar with us and kind of giving us instruction on the microphone. We just went from one composition to the next. Well, it definitely flows. Um, and by far my favorite of the three records that came out in that set. And that was with Larry Graham just hanging out. It's like, I couldn't even get used to that. That was irritating me. Like, how you got a legend? Why is he hanging around? <laughs> He's freaking me out. He's my idol. <laughs> you know, so with that tension also, like Larry Graham is watching me play drums. I don't know how to wrap my, wrap my mind, wrap my mind around that. <laughs> so, and he was, oh, he was the coolest. Larry was so cool. Yeah, and, he was really nice when I met him. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just saying it's like of what we did with Prince, you know, and what he did without us, you know, it's like it's it's I it's impossible to know. I I got to peek into the uh vault one time. Um an engineer named Ray Hanfelt was putting a tape away in Studio A, and Prince had already gone to his office or wherever and uh, I said, Wait, uh, uh, I, I don't remember how the subject came up, but he was like, well, I got to take this down to the vault. And I was like, can I see? Yeah. So <laughs> we went, took the elevator down and went in that room before the actual vault where he used to keep all his awards. They have them clearly, you know, uh, visible at Paisley Park now. But he used to keep all the Grammys and whatnot uh, in this room. He had a, like a trophy room. And um, he, it's literally a vault. The door is like a, it's a vault. There's a combination, you know, and Ray's turn of the thing. Click. He opens it, he switches the light on, and I'm still standing in the, in the other room, just kind of looking in. I never actually set foot, but I did put my face in there and kind of do this. Like, and it was just rows and rows of, you know, like office shelving. Just imagine, like, I don't want to over uh, project, but somewhere between 10 and 20 of these shelving units and just tapes all the way from wall to wall. Plus, like, some weird, like, there was a movie that they shot before Purple Rain. I think it called, like, The Second Coming, maybe. Like that, the reels for that were just sitting in a cardboard box, like, you know, kind of close to where you come in the door. Just like, just stuff, you know, paraphernalia, you know. <laughs> it was crazy. I think there was like a half mannequin with one of, you know, with one of Prince's suits on it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it was surreal. Uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't put one, I never put my foot in there. You know, I, I always had, um, uh, a reverence for, you know, my position in Prince's universe. Some stuff is like, I, unless he can say, 
oh, go ahead. You know, I, I wouldn't do it, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I, there's no telling. I mean, what I, what I began to understand was that there are a lot of, um, wow, this conversation is about to get deep. Are you sure you got time? I got time, man. Go for it. I'll try. I'll try to push through it in a comprehensive manner. Um, there's a, there are alt, alternate versions of a lot of songs that people already know in the vault, like maybe, you know, arrangements that didn't work out so well, or sometimes Prince would um, uh, finish the track, you know, using like more organic instruments like pianos and, you know, and, and acoustic drums and, you know, like standard fare. There might be two versions. There might be a version done with the Lin machine and synthesizers and like two different versions of the same song. And I know that Prince had very strong uh, ideas about harmonics and acoustic versus digital. And he was, he was educated about it. Um, somebody somewhat recently got at me and said they took a book out uh, of the Minneapolis Public Library downtown uh, on uh, 432 hertz. You know how, do you know anything about sound? Uh, yeah, frequencies, the frequencies. Yes. You know, everything has been set at like 440, 441, 442. Yeah, but, dynamic range and all that. Yeah, but if you know anything about what happens at those frequencies, some of them are meant to disturb, you know, like the spinal column. They're just, like some of that is... I mean, I don't want to say it's like there's a science to it. Yeah, it's scientific that certain frequencies will make you feel things. And, you know, and and something was said about like the music business going to the standard level of 44.1 that had to do with how it affects people, like what it what it may uh, inspire you to do or not do, you know, and that it may all have come from like German technology. Like Nazi Germany, you know, like if we use this, we can irritate people to the point where they will submit to, you know what I mean? But at 432 hertz, apparently, everything is harmonious. All your chakras respond differently. And he said that in the book that he read, that he uh, uh, took out at the, at, at the library, he distinctly recognized Prince's handwriting. Like... Prince was writing notes in this book and highlighting, like like in college. And he's like Prince was. Prince had take, Prince had studied. He was Prince was not. It was it. He did everything with purpose. There was intent, and I think he was experimenting somewhat with, you know, the differential between acoustic and digital, and how it changed, you know, how it made people feel. What songs sounded better in what way? I remember one day uh, he just kind of blurted out to not blurted out. He just matter of fact telling Rosie like, "Your your voice is is a classic voice. You you belong you know in, in analog surroundings. Like your your voice didn't sound right against uh, synthesizers and you know." And I just I was like, "That's odd. I hadn't even considered that. You know, I'm." 20, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I'm listening. And I know I, I know enough to keep my mouth shut and just kind of, 
you know, but I never really understood what he meant by that. And it's, he's like, yeah, he's like, no, you have a class. You're, you're like, you're like Aretha Franklin. You're like the, the new Aretha Franklin. Your, your voice sounds better when it's accompanied by real instruments. And like, he had definite opinions about when it was working on that level. You know, do you have any idea like uh, what, what part of his life he might have been studying that book? I mean, I know I, I have no idea. I'm just wondering if it was early on or mid or later or what. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he was, Prince is one of the smartest people I ever met, you know. But I mean, he was also one of the most reckless people I ever met. So I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> I think about it sometimes. It's just like he he was never happy with anything unless he could play with it, you know, unless he could do something with it. He was not one to accept the the natural circumstances of any situation. He was always tweaking it. I mean, fair enough. I mean, is that not funk? Is it George Clinton said? A, 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 a nothing good unless you play with it. Mm-hmm. it. That's really it. That's what it is. It's like he's always his imagination and his um, uh, attention span. Like Prince just, you know, I'm certainly ADHD or maybe just, uh, you know what I mean? Just like it was it was easy to, to, to bore him. Everything was by design, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's and that's what I was saying. It's like somebody asked me, like, "Well, who do you think was better, man?" Who? I'm like, listen, anybody who managed to stay in Prince's band for over two years <laughs> is a qualified genius to me. I don't because you got to run at you got to run his race. You don't have a say. You know, if you could keep up with Prince, man, you're a bad dude or no, or lady. No, no question. Did, or did, something. <laughs> did he ever? Did he ever uh, talk about the recordings in the vault and all that? Did he ever like um, say anything to you that you know? Th- there were so many bootlegs that were coming out during the nineties. How do you feel about that? Was he pissed about it? Or uh, <laughs> wow, you're really going for the real deal. I remember uh, somebody. I was in Europe somewhere, and, and some fan couldn't wait to give me a bootleg. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And so I heard a lot of things I had never heard before. It was a. Uh, Maybe it was called uh, the Jewel Box or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it was. And I, I is Power Fantastic on there? Probably. Okay, I had heard that, and I I I had been listening to it at home, and I came into rehearsal, and uh, Prince and I happened to be walking out of the the sound stage together, and I said, "Hey, I said, did Miles Davis play the trumpet on uh, Power Fantastic?" And he turned, he said, "No." And why do you know that song? <laughs> I just kind of, I remember how I got out of it, but I got out of it. <laughs> I never did again ask about any bootlegs. Mm. Uh, but I'll say this, you know, I mean, it's funny because I'm spilling so much tea, but he's dead. He can't sue me now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I had heard from a mastering engineer at, at the hit factory in New York that sometimes Prince <laughs> would bring like a dat recording of, you know, a show or something he had been working on. Uh, like he would, the limo would pull up at the hit factory and his security <laughs> would bring a, a dat tape, you know, of a, of a recording 
and you know, he asked this particular dude if he could master it. Like, like he would hire a guy to master some of these bootlegs that would re- that would surface. So it's hard to say. It's like, was Prince planning all these? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like he certainly spoke out against it. You know, uh, if you were to ask him about it, it's like, how are you? You know, making money off my music. Why is it? You know, I mean, you'd get the standard fare. You'd get what you think you're supposed to get. That's my music. What gives you, you know, why, how do you, where do you get the audacity? You know, he always appeared hot about it. But then when I heard that, I was like, I'm not sure what to believe. Playing both sides of the fence. Right? Yeah, it's like certain things he wanted out there to be heard. But, you know, I don't think he wanted anybody to, to start a franchise. <laughs> Let it trickle out in certain ways that I can sort of control. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like you, I mean, he again said to me one day, I don't know what's a hit. He said, I don't know what's a hit, and I don't know what people really want from me. I just create, you know, and, you know, if there's an audience, great, you know, but he really didn't have like any kind of crystal ball or he just, it was all happening on the inside. He he was not, um, uh, I mean, really, it was, he was, he took so many risks because he was so unsure of, you know, the reaction. Like, well, no, why not try it? Who knows? He was not afraid to take risks. And especially, I mean, if you think about his first three records, Prince was supposed to, supposed to be dropped after Dirty Mind. Um. So suppose you've got a three album deal and your first two records aren't, you know, they did okay, but not, you know, you still haven't caught on. He's got one record left, (laughs) you know, Dirty Mind, I don't think I even have to say, is such a departure from the first two records. That's Prince going, well, it don't matter now. All that matters is that I get to say what I need to say. Well, he even did that, Michael, after I Want to Be Your Lover was a pop crossover hit. Mm-hmm. He had that. He could have still tried to do that. Yeah, but I don't. It, I I don't think he had enough success at that point for the record label to go. Eh, you know, great. Let's you know. Let's keep moving forward. Like it was pretty much the writing was on the wall. Is what I understand. Is that it was like Dirty Mind was the hail mary. So, and then controversy came with things like jack you off and stuff like that. that's what i'm saying it's like something there was a breakthrough maybe it was personally inside him or you know maybe it was the the, the uh conversation he had with his management you know who knows what he was paying attention to i mean uh, but whatever happened dirty mind opened the door and that's where he was at you know uh after that it was like I don't know how to please anybody, really. I just got to be true to myself. And if it happens, great. If it doesn't, I can live with that as long as it's on my terms. That's really what I think the moral of that story is, is I got to tell it the way I see it. It might not be your cup of tea, but, you know, I'm fighting for my life here. Music is my life. Well, and also, and then later on, he had such a foundational core 
of followers and believers that he had more license to kind of do whatever he might want to do. Well, sure, because you know, I mean, it's yeah, exactly. It's just incremental success from there. Nineteen ninety nine, incredible. First, you know, a number one single, uh, when doves cry, you know. Next, the number one single, Kiss. Like he got on a roll, man, and it's you know, and uh, it's funny because I talked to St. Paul Peterson about this one time, and he was, I was like, what was that like? He said, man. You know, I was a fly on the wall. I was just a keyboard player in the time. I was like 17, you know. <laughs> Maybe he was like 16 playing keys in the time. And uh, <laughs> he's like, I just watched Prince just make decision after decision and drop song after song and never miss. It was uncanny. It's like he was just, he for for a span there, he couldn't do wrong. Like I, he's like I've never seen anything like it. That in that Peppy Willie conversation I mentioned to you, he said that the one thing was that there was no way, even when he was a teenager, there was no way that that guy was going to fail and not make it and not do what he was set out setting out to do musically. Yeah, I believe single-mindedness. That. Yes, and that can be very frustrating when you deal with other people who are not. Yeah. So I always kind of you know deep down. It's like whenever he got like beside himself or needed to lash out, you know, it's like, I get it, man. There's a war going on in you. You're fighting a very important war, you know, like part of me would, would not, it would sympathize. And the other part would be like, well, he's, you know, <laughs> he's being, always being that guy today. All right. You know, but Tommy and Sonny and Morris and I, you know, we got through it by venting to each other about it, you know, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then we, Come to find out many years later that uh, that Paisley Park is, is, is apparently like bugged everywhere. Like, and that, which put me in the position where it's like Prince's ego has to be like concrete. Because the things we would say, you know, out of anger, and for him to come back and go to work with us the next day, knowing our true feelings about some of those things, I'm like, man, he's bulletproof. He must not be able to like nothing can get to him. We would be cracking up and just you had to you had to flush that out. It was not an easy job to do without the sense of humor, without being able to you know step away from it and and take it apart. Calling him Skippy behind his back and stuff like that. No, not that. But I mean, it just. I mean, I'd be honest. The first time he played uh, Days of Wild. It's like he, you know, he really thought he had accomplished something. You know, like we heard the version that was supposed to go on uh, the Gold Experience, and you know, I'm sure, you know, we were nice about it. And oh yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, you know, said whatever we thought we needed to say, you know. But I, I remember talking to Sonny. Sonny was like, "Man, that ain't hit. Something needs to change on that." And like, he needs a rhythm section or something. You know, we were somewhere in Paisley. And I don't think it's uh, it's it's an accident that the better known versions of Days of Wild are all the ones with where we're all playing together. It was so much stronger once we got a hold of it, you know. And that that version that he meant to be released, there was nothing nothing was spoken about it after that. <laughs> it just disappeared. <laughs> so like maybe he heard us talking, mm. you know. It's hard to say. Yeah, well, that's one that was of, fortuitous right there. If the well, better version came out. Yeah, I remember, man, Lenny Kravitz would come out to the shows for a little while. 
and he just he'd be laying for days and It's like, man, that song is like a freight train. Y'all playing that tonight? Yeah, Lenny, we playing it, man. All right, all right. <laughs> you know, he'd be sitting, huh? Oh, so sometimes you guys would be like twenty minutes on that jam, right? It it was a gift that kept on giving. Nobody ever got tired of it. It was like a night of thump of the Thumbosaurus people or something. <laughs> you could get a good ten to twenty out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> it, you talk about stirring the the pot. You know, I'm thinking about um, the MTV Awards uh, with the pants and all that. Did, did you guys know that that was going to happen? That stunt, and you know. First, you have to tell me what are you calling a stunt? When Get Off was done at the MTV Awards and mm -hmm. Prince had the backless pants that created oh, such a stir. That's what you're calling the stunt? Yeah, it's sort of like a, a okay. move to like get attention, right? Uh, all right. Uh, I, well, I mean, I, maybe I'm. I, or to I, be I, controversial, you know, I mean. Uh, well, I mean, he's pretty. That's, that yeah. was what he's supposed to do. I mean, it wasn't, I, like I said, we weren't let in on anything. Things just went the way they went. So we're in the prayer meeting in his, you know, uh, dressing room at the Universal Amphitheater, which is where they were shooting the show. You know, he comes out of the bathroom and into the prayer circle, like facing us. We don't even know he's got the 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 butt out, uh, uh, you know, uh, slacks on until he <laughs> goes to leave the room. And we follow him, and, the, <laughs> and we're all walking to the stage, and nobody's saying nothing. But we all, you know, <laughs> all right, Prince, you know. So that's when we found out was maybe seven minutes before we we went on stage. Wow! Uh, but uh, you, your, uh, your 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 uh, viewers need to know that was not Prince's naked butt cheek. There was there was uh, opaque material in those slots you know and uh so you know it it looked like that but that wasn't what exactly was going on it was just a little more elegant than that not much but it was not bare cheek <laughs> so uh what can you tell people about you know um why you were no longer part of the group why i'm not well, oh, I, in, why why in the nineties or mid nineties, ninety six, whatever it was, ninety five, uh, why did you part ways? Oh, oh wow! You know, I gotta say that once the band got whittled down to just being Morris, Tommy, Sonny, Maite, and me, uh, it was a. Uh, that kind of happened in conjunction with the war with Warner Brothers getting started. Um, and that brought a lot of tension. Prince was, you know, often uh, agitated and beside himself uh, during that period, easily irritable. And um, uh, so we were kind of walking on pins and needles, and it was getting kind of intense for us also just dealing with him in that state. And I think, you know, over the two or three years that, that all that was going on, we were just becoming um, defiant, starting to talk back, starting to be disagreeable. You know, we, um, 
went to do some shows in Japan in early 96. I want to say it was January. And, uh, sorry, the, um, the equipment, for some reason, was going to take a longer time to get to Japan this time. Oh, I know why, because it had to travel from, mini, uh, from Minnesota rather than New York or L.A., um, you know, or from Europe. So, uh, you know, uh, the boat was going to take a little longer than normal. So that meant we had a little bit more time off between rehearsing and getting to Japan. And it was a very complicated situation we were in uh, technologically uh, with the show. Like, Prince didn't do things the way anybody else did. Prince could have just as easily gotten a sequencer like Janet Jackson, you know, and let that thing play and do all the heavy lifting. But he didn't want to be tied to any sort of, you know, format or system that was running him. He needed to be running it. So everything we played was freehand. You know, it, it... Nothing was flown in. Uh, I had to internalize the tempos of all the loops and stuff, you know, so that when I count off the song, it, we're in the right speed, you know? Like I had to, it was, I have to say, for me, uh, I, for any drummer, they, re- they, they would recognize the difficulty in, in that. And it's wrought with peril because wherever I set the tempo, it's got to work with the samples that Barbarella's playing and Morris. Barbarella's playing all the Claire Fisher orchestration and the horns and whatnot, and Morris is playing all the vocals and sound effects. And if I count the song off at the wrong tempo, hey, none of that going to fall in line. You know, and uh, especially like if it was a song where there was no like loops running or samples up for me, I just had to be there. And then they have to play perfectly. <laughs> you know, it's it. People really have no idea how bad we were, man. So much precision. Yes, surgical. Uh, you know, and to the point where I mean, uh, no drummer could have sat it, could have stepped in to my position, and and had an easy go of it. I was always much more empathetic w- with Kirk. You know, with the situation with Kirk because I knew what he was going through. You know. I knew what, how hard it was to do what I was doing, but I had managed to make it work. And my my uh, fear of uh, failure drove all that, <laughs> you know. So, I and between Morris and I, it's like, and nobody's a hundred percent on a hundred percent of the time. And every once in a while, Morris might trigger a sample a little early or a little late, and I'd have to adjust the groove a little bit to make it fall right. That yeah, that's that ain't no easy win. You got to know what you're doing. I had to understand how you know, and sometimes Prince's vocals would be one tempo here, and then they'd switch a little. You know, he'd drag the end or he'd drag the beginning, and then they'd catch up to a different. It's it was a nightmare, but I figured out how to make it work. But Prince didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing the job, (laughs) what the job had become. He had no conscious knowledge of how difficult it was for us to do what we were doing. It was just getting done and that's all he cared about. And he didn't really understand that until Kirk had had to take my place. And I, Kirk and I never talked about it. I didn't tell him what to watch out for. I was not vetted. He didn't ask. But, you know, uh, uh, Morris uh, called me one day. He's like, man, you know, 
Bland, you know, you, man, you something else, man. You know, it's, uh, he said, we've been trying to work, you know, the way the band had worked before. And, you know, Prince just keeps hollering at me about, you know, where I'm dropping the samples at. And I don't, Kirk and Morris have not developed that kind of communication yet, you know. And I don't know if Morris could even quite explain what it was I was doing that made it work. You know what I mean? Just that I had his back. I was watching that pinky. And he dropped it. And I'd listen. And like, okay, we're in. Okay, we're good. You're I had like, to assess like, these things. You're like the glue keeping the Yes. I was like a, 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 a correction mechanism. That's how I had to look at it. And it's like enough. You know, I had to adjust enough to compensate, but not enough for Prince to go, what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, subtle, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and again, I don't mean to sing my own praises, but you know, uh, we were that version of the NPG. I mean, Prince had to change his entire way of working after that. Once he figured out what's going, what was going on, once Morris was like sick of Prince yelling at him, listen, man, Bland had my back. Every time, everything I did, he was watching my hands the whole time. I, this is not going to work like this. That took years to develop that. You know, you, you can't expect Kirk to come walking in and just, so they <laughs> did away with all that. He started over. <laughs> so uh, I don't know even what I'm really saying, except that was like working, you know, on yeah. the Manhattan Project. <laughs> like, so that'll, that'll get you keyed up, man. And then to have somebody who sometimes was an ingrate or, you know, rough with you, they don't understand the circumstances you're under. And, and they're not, uh, and they don't care. Prince was concerned about results, you know, and he was not uh, long on excuses. And so that kind of, that pressure, you know, things got got harder to deal with. It's like, man, we're literally you know, creating a world. <laughs> we're doing something that most people wouldn't even try. And, you know, and I could understand his side of it, but I I knew what the experience was for us also. So I think it just the the level of irritation, it all led up to this trip going to Japan in early ninety-five. Just boiled over. And we didn't have enough time to rehearse. You know, like normally we'd get to where we were playing at two, three days before, you know, get the gear set up, work for a couple days, you know. We do that at Wembley all the time. The day we arrived was not the day that, that the show was. It, we, it took two days. Once the stage was set up, you know, you got to feel things out. You got to, you know, we always had that luxury. We didn't this time. And the show was not awful, but it definitely wasn't, you know, the greatest Prince show you might have ever seen. But Prince got so hostile. He was so upset with us, you know. And, you know, that night, um, the next night, rather, well, actually, the next day, <laughs> he comes to sound check. Same venue, because we had like three shows there. He comes on stage and swiftly uh, steps off the stage and into the house and goes back to the front of house board to where he tells the front of house guy, uh, you know, what he wants to hear. And then he gets on the mic and tells us, kick drum, please. <clears throat> you know, uh, bass, please. Is it like, okay? Well, what's going on here? 
Prince has just stopped talking to us for, for you know, three, four days. Hmm. And during that time, you know, we had a lot to consider, really. I think that was when we kind of decided, like, you know what, man? You know, this is your house. You know, I, I, I we none of us ever you didn't you didn't have the opportunity to lose sight of the fact that, you know, you're working under a dictatorship. And that's fine, you know. But without any common sense or pragmatic, you know, it's like he could have very easily understood that, you know, what was really going on, which was we didn't get enough time to prepare before the first show. But instead of accepting that reality, you know, he just got upset with us. Stop talking. Uh, no prayer meet. No, uh, Dwayne came to our dressing room. A Prince said, you guys should just go ahead and, uh, you know, have prayer meeting in your own room tonight. Oh, really? Okay, so now we're down to, like, you don't want to even pray with us. Okay. All right. And just we started talking, you know, right there. This is before the show. Like, okay. We're all sitting in our dressing room going, I, I don't, I, I'm not with this. Like, this is not cool. You know, so we get through the show. Um, and uh, I think after the third night, like it finally, we were triumphant. And Prince all of a sudden, hey, great, great job. You know, and all of a sudden he just comes to life like, oh, you know, oh, that was spectacular. It was, you know, uh, this is the one I was waiting for. We got it now, you know. And what the four of us was just kind of like, but he was always moody, right? But it just got a little more extreme. I don't know if I could even say that. It's just uh, everybody has their own sense of justice, I, suppo I suppose. And we didn't think for 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 what we were being paid, and 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 what and and how we were treated, like the the collar. I said to somebody recently, the the collar doesn't match the cuffs, like. You you want the world, you know. You want us to perform a miracle every night, and it's your prerogative and and your right to expect that. But we will fail. It will happen. We can't control everything, you know. And like his, the sort of irrationality of his response, kind of was like okay. It kind of put us in a like, is him and us. You know what I mean. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.